GPS powered by SET. Welcome to a special RPS presentation of a band we hold dearly close to our festival's heart, the live whirlwind of rage and catharsis that is known as IDOLS in capital letters. Without any pissing about, the Bristolians swiftly followed up 2018's sophomore album Joy as an Act of Resistance and its extensive global tour with Ultra Mono, an album recorded in France, produced by Nick Launay, Adam Greenspan, along with some programming from hip-hop producer Kenny Beats and featuring a diverse array of guests, such as Jenny Beth from Savages, Bad Seed Warren Ellis, The Jesus Lizards' David Yao and one of their biggest fans, jazz sensation Jamie Cullum. We managed to connect with founding member and bass guitarist Adam Devonshire, known about town simply as Dev, to talk about the makings of their UK number one album, dealing with post-tour blues and sleeping rough on the streets of London in winter. Congratulations, Ultramono has been the fastest selling vinyl release in the UK in 2020 and it rushed straight into, into the top spot, outselling every other artist in the top five by a long shot. How, how did a band like Idols celebrate the good news when the rest of the world isn't really allowed to celebrate? Well, we, I, we, 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 <laughs> we celebrated by rehearsing and writing some more music. So, um, yeah, we haven't really, we're not really ones to dwell on, on things that have happened that much. Um, so, yeah, I don't, we haven't had a party or anything like that. You know, it's just, it's an amazing thing. Um, but yeah, you know, there's still more work to be done and still more songs to be written. So I'm sure, you know, I'm sure it was sinking at some point. <laughs> I think we're all just a bit like, what the, what the hell's that? <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it's, a, it's an amazing thing, but, um, yeah, yeah, no, no proper celebrations, no, no rock and roll stories, so to speak. And uh, after the success of your second album, Joy is an Act of Resistance, was it a conscious decision to get right into the making of a follow-up record with Ultramono? Yeah, I mean, you know, we, um, so for, for us, we were, we were just on tour a lot and, uh, you know, since Joy came out, but the, the timelines from when kind of brutalism to joy it, for, for the public, it seemed like it was kind of, you know, it was very quick. But for us, it was a year and a half before brutalism came out. So we had like quite a long time to get joy together. And, you know, as we when we got joy finished, we pretty much started thinking about the next record already. And, you know, so we, we gave ourselves enough time with it. And we had a very clear idea about what we wanted to do with this record and uh, I think it's kind of uh, hopefully come across. It has. Um, I mean, what, what, what were the starting points? What ingredients did you have on the table? Was it drawn all from scratch or did you have some ideas that didn't make it onto Joy? 
Um, so we um, basically we always start each record with the title, and that gives you the the kind of uh, impetus to like work within these these boundaries, you know. So, you know, with joy, we we that was uh, you know we we knew what we were working with within those within those lines, and with ultra mono, it was just very succinctly kind of us as a as an engine and working together so that's that's kind of how we start stuff you know it just keeps it keeps our minds from wandering too far you know it's like having the you know it's like being a painter and having endless colors on your palette you know it can be too much so if you just kind of trim all that down to a certain amount of colors on the palette then that's that's the texture and uh, the tone you're going to create is from that yeah i understand that i mean getting so many people sorted and ready to bring their best to rehearsals and recording sessions isn't an easy task for most bands if we've studied the history of rock and roll and while we hear a chaos in your music you sound very well rehearsed like i don't notice i don't detect any sloppiness are there any methods yeah well thank you very much that's uh that's not what what we all hear when we're rehearsing but thank you <laughs> but are there any methods within the band structure that guarantee you always bring the best of yourselves to creative reunions yeah i mean it, we've been we've been a band for a long time now so we've learned a lot along along the path of like you know making mistakes and and learning how to write music and learning what's good for us as as people and five individuals that are working together so we we have a quite a succinct way of of working with each other and we know what each other's strengths are so we kind of play to that and you know we we work very hard you know we do we work you know <laughs> we're we're in the rehearsal room for five days a week now for six seven hours a day like writing and and getting better and you know coming home and we're always thinking about the music and you know just trying to learn new things and and, and improve as musicians and and as bandmates really I mean, you've been in this band for longer than, what is it, 12 years? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think me and Joe started it in 2008, 2009, something like that. Has it started to feel a little bit like work? You know how when, was, was it was it fun at the beginning and now you're like, okay, this, is, this has become your career and you can make a great life out of it. And you're doing what you love, but has it started to feel like, oh, damn it, we've got schedules now, we've got other people who depend on us? That kind of feeling that... I mean, it does, but it's the best job in the world, you know? I, it's honestly like, you know, I, it's all we've ever wanted from, from starting the band, really, was to be able to be in this position, to be able to have enable us time to be able to go, you know, and do this. Because, you know, when we were starting and right up until kind of joy, really, um, we were, well, halfway through the tour of joy as an act of resistance. We were working full-time jobs, 
um, and we were kind of splitting it to enable us to be able to do the band. And we finally got a position to go in a position to go full time with the band. And yeah, it just frees up all, all like all this time to be able to you know write more music, which is which is like I said, the dream, and it's what we've worked worked such a long time to get here. You know. Yeah, yeah. Congratulations once again. I mean, it's it is the dream, and and you're making so many people happy at the same time, as as well as you living your dream. But I wonder, is it? <laughs> what are you drinking, by the way? Is this tea? That is a that's a cup of coffee. I'm I'm feeling pretty jaded. I I drank too much coffee earlier, and so I started to crash. <laughs> and then I realised I was talking to you, and I was like, I probably should have another coffee. Uh, six o'clock in the evening which is probably a really bad idea yeah <laughs> here we are johan here we are <laughs> you're a rock and roll star now you, you can afford to go to bed late because you can't sleep because of coffee but maybe it's a little uh, dev i might be a bit too early to ask this in your career at this point but is reaching an unexpected level of success like you have can that start to become a hindrance to the raw creativity that you felt when you know when you were hungry for it uh, not really. I mean, we. I think it's, it, we're still just as, uh, you know, hungry, and we still strive to write better music, and we still want to write better albums. We we just have a few more tools at our disposal to be able to do it now. You know, I think we're better songwriters. Um, we're we're better musicians, and we we know what works and what doesn't work. Whereas at, at the start, when you're just writing and writing, and you you, you don't really know why something works and why something doesn't but the better you get the more you can take yourself away from that and say well that works because of this or that doesn't work because of this um so now i think we're just in hopefully in a position where we can you know we can scrap an idea instantly because we can go no that's not right because of this and then you know hopefully you just write better music because of it and that's not to say that everything we write is great because you know it's <laughs> we've written like 40 40 ideas for this next record and you know some of it might some of it works some of it doesn't you know but you kind of have to go through that process to get kind of get there and and to to, to get the good stuff you know I read that getting the right sound was an important part of this record. What was it that drew you to work with a hip-hop producer like Kenny Beats on a record where guitars and live drums are so upfront? Well, for, I mean, uh, I think Joe's Joe's explained it better in the past. But um, you know, we're all big we're all big fans of uh, hip-hop, and there's a a a tone in this in the like negative space in the music you know it, it can be quite sparse in in instrumentation you know quite often it's just a kick drum and a synth or a kick drum and a snare and a synth and a synth but there's so much space in the music but it sounds so full and rounded and that was what we wanted to kind of achieve you know because we were essentially a lot of the time like me 
uh, me, Bowen and Lee were playing all as like one riff or one singular thing, motif within the song. But then, then there was the drums on top. So it was like, right, how do we maximize the sound around those two instruments kind of thing? So that was like where the thought of, uh, you know, Joe is, uh, Joe's put the biggest hip hop fan in the band. And, you know, we got, we got, we, we got a message from Kenny and, you know, the stars aligned and it was just meant to be on that one, I think. And thankfully it, it kind of, I think it came out really pretty good of, um, of how we wanted it, you know? I know it, it was very unexpected because I imagine that there, there must be so many people, producers and engineers who'd love to get their hands on a, on a recording session with idols. Have you got a bit of a wish list for like future plans? Maybe not the next album, but down the line, do you do that kind of thing where you're like, oh, wouldn't it be great to see what would happen if you were in the same room as, I don't know, DJ Shadow, for instance, or... I'm I'm still um, kind of amazed at the people that we get we have worked with already, and I still feel like a a bit of a, a kid in a sweet shop about um, you know who we've worked with already, and I <laughs> you know who knows who knows in the future you, you kind of you, you have people where you'd like you know be like oh that'd be great to work with them or whatever, but I don't know it's it's just kind of finding the right person for the right project as well, you know. So, you know, I, I love Steve Albini. Uh, I think we all love Steve Albini, but there's certain things that he would be great for with us and certain things that he really wouldn't work for with us. So, you know, it's about just choosing the right, right, uh, you know, the right thing at the right time, I guess. I think every Idols fan is counting the days for that to happen. Steve Albini and Idols, uh, that, that would be a match made in heaven. There's a rawness that you both share, Shellac and, and Idols, that it would be a great sort of past and present getting together. Oh, I'll get you goosebumps just from imagining how that would sound like. You also read... <laughs> He's, uh, you know, he's 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 producing like, absolutely astounding records, you know. So, yeah, who knows? Who knows what the future may hold? You know, you never yeah. know, do you, Johan? You never know. You never know. <laughs> You also repeat with Nick Launay on who produced Joy and many records I own. Um, record producers are wise people. They've got a lot of experience dealing with all kinds of bands. What did you learn from just sitting back and observing his direction of this band in the studio? Um, his, his knowledge of guitars is um, and guitar tone and how to achieve um, a tone within the studio um, through through technical stuff is second to none and it's something that you know only he knows how to do <laughs> um but yeah he's a he's a he's an incredible producer um yeah him and uh it's him and adam like co-produced this record and both of the ideas that they they had for for us was just 
you know, stuff stuff that you don't think about because you're a bit too close to the music. And it's great to have minds like that kind of delving in and 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 suggesting things. You know, that are obviously they've got the knowledge for it. That's why they're there. But yeah, they're great people. It's great to work with them. instance i noticed there's there's a lot of how would i say industrial textures to to put it bluntly uh, is that did that come from your rehearsal space or was that also nick and adam sort of thinking hey uh, go for it with you know bringing like weird sounds out of the guitar well i think we you know we um, we 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 kind of spent quite a lot of the time thinking about how to make it, the guitars not sound like guitars mm. Um, mm. you know like you know it's our third record now so you know Lee and Bowen especially are very pretty knowledgeable about their craft and what they do and you know they spend pretty much most of their nights just looking at pedal videos every night so <laughs> you know there's there's <laughs> there's a lot of um yeah, I think it was a, it was a, it was a great collaboration because we had like the idea of like what to do and you know like the, the start of grounds with the with the Bowie's guitar that sounds like the synth with the with the roll down on the delay, um, you know, and like being able to like have that idea but it's not quite there and then like Nick and Adam were like, oh well, what if you add this to it and blah 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 and put it through a fifteen or whatever and you know that's uh, yeah all of these little little things kind of uh, that happen in the studio kind of what make the record, you know? I find shame in a bad grip tight like a withering thing We made it after three albums and such a dedicated fan base, you're obviously doing something very right. Um, do you still get creative angst of not knowing what to try next? Hells yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, huh. yeah. I mean, it's, um, you know, it's, uh, you, you, you kind of have an idea. Personally, it's like, you know, it's just about, it's, it's about, you know, it's, you kind of go into it and you try and, you, you try and stay as naive as possible within, within what you do to kind of not let what's happened before affects your, your approach too much going into the next, next record. So hopefully like you, you've kind of got to forget it all again to then start again, but you've still retained the knowledge, if that makes sense. Yeah, not losing the innocence, not losing the, 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 the childlike uh, wonder, I guess. Yeah, yeah, you know, just being instinctive and just be like, you know, if it, you know, why, <laughs> why play a note when that sound that you've just like, that feedback sounds great on top of that, you know, just trying to stay with that kind of attitude about putting things in songs you know because because like i said with the palette when it's so big you can just keep going and going and going and you can never put the paintbrush down so it's it's uh yeah it's good to try and stay kind of relatively naive on things i think is the best way to put it i am a feminist
I was so lucky, I, I count my blessings. I was so fortunate to see you guys playing M. Benidorm last November, a year ago, uh, almost a year ago. Uh, with Primal Scream. Yes, yes. Uh, for the Primavera Weekender, one of our last uh, events. That was our last festival event because this year obviously has to be has been postponed. Uh, but I, and that was my first experience seeing you guys live finally, and it was a great crowd because there was you know it was only a thousand of us and it was intimate and uh, we it was it was really incredible and you guys really turn it up to eleven as they would say in uh, Spinal Tap. <laughs> um, uh, many artists suffer from post-tour depression, right? How do you guys deal with going back home and spending time idly <laughs> while you recover from the exhaustion? I, li I like what you did. I like what you did there, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, well, basically, you know, we just try and decompress um, for quite a bit, and we hang out with our, you know, our families and our partners, and you know, we just try and take stock, and that's when you start reflecting on things that. Um, that have happened um, over the course of that period of time. Um, yeah, we just, you know, try and not, you know, try and relax. I don't know, I'm, I'm pretty bad for going out. So as soon as I, I try and stay like pretty on, kind of on the level on tour. I try not to drink too much or party too much. And then I come back from tour and I just like, you know, I, I end up going out for like a week and a half, just catching up with all my mates and just end up partying for far too long. So. Being on tour is, is weirdly quite healthy for me, rather than being back in Bristol. I'm assuming I'm assuming it was your idea to get physical with Dev. Uh, <laughs> I, I can, I, uh, yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I'll be honest. I'm not an exerciser. I'm not. I'm not great at it. And it's, uh, it's not my forte. But you know, I can. Uh, I can sure put the costume on anyway. <laughs> Uh, no, and obviously it was great. You know, it was a great way of interacting on social media. How important is it to this band to create community, not just with the music and the shows? Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's it is very important, and you know, like, the, like social media can be a force for good. It's just there's a lot of kind of division in the world, and places like uh, Afghan, like, like the fan community that's been created by those guys around the band, is a very positive thing in in this kind of divisive society that seems to be happening through you know like all the social media and stuff and and you know the, the right being you know on the on the far right the left 
being on the very far left or whatever, however you want to term it. Um, but yeah, there are little pockets of, of things that do make you kind of feel good about it. And there is a force for good in, in social media in some ways, you know, and, and I'm glad that there are those little pockets around, you know? Yeah, yeah. But yeah, it is, imp- it is definitely important for us. Um, and we do, we do try and kind of stay in as much as possible. The, the, the story of Idols is not one of overnight success. You did your fair share of playing, sorry for the word, shitholes, shall we say, before the world caught on. They're definitely not shitholes. They, the, they are the backbone of, of the British and European music industries. And without them, you know, we'd be pretty lost. And, you know, you wouldn't have the opportunity for bands like us to come through. But yeah, God bless those shitholes. Yes, and especially now, we, we really have to support them. Um, but from your experience, why are those uh, harsher tours great for turning bands, bands into power stations like yourself? Well, you just get, you, you're afforded the opportunity to kind of make mistakes, I think, and you get to learn your craft and you get to get up close and personal with crowds and build that connection with, with fans, you know, and as much as social media is a thing, I think because um, for you know for the five six years that we touring before we got to meet fans and you know we were always hanging around you know like me and john did the match for three four years on tour so we were just always meeting people and that's that i don't know that's the kind of community-based thing that that's kind of we like that we're we're more <laughs> attuned with i think and that's you know we've met some, some beautiful people along the way um so yeah i think those those venues are, yeah, like I said, the lifeblood of, of creating, you know, bands to progress if they want to progress or if they're, you know, if they're, you know, you don't need to get bigger. It's, it's fucking wonderful playing at, you know, venues that size. Yeah, true, true. What, what's the, try and remember, what's the lowest of the low you remember from being on one of those first tours, you know, traveling far to do a gig? And, you know, it's not like Spain where it's sunny and stuff, you know, I can imagine a November tour or something when it's raining, it's pissing down, you're playing on a Tuesday, that kind of thing. Because uh, those things, do, as you say, they do build character. What's what's the lowest there was, you know, a point where you thought, you know what? I mean, it's, it's from a personal point of view. I mean, I, I'd never really look at the gigs as like a downside, but it's, you know, your own personal behaviours can, uh, can definitely let you down. And... Uh, I think there was a show that we did. We went to our very first award show at the Q Awards um, on like the night before our biggest London show at the time at the at the Forum, Kentish Town Forum. And um, I ended up going to the pub with a friend of mine afterwards, and there was a lock-in at the pub, and I didn't leave until about six o'clock in the morning, and. When I got back to the venue to get onto the bus, I <clears throat> couldn't remember the code to get into the gate. Um, 
And so I ended, and I was so embarrassed about getting back that late, and I knew it was like a bad move. I didn't want to call anyone on the bus to wake to wake them up. So I ended up sleeping on the street outside the venue uh, for about two hours uh, in September in London in the cold. And then I had to go and do a photo shoot at about half past nine in the morning. So it's things like that that kind of make you realise to never, ever, ever do that again. You know, <laughs> you, le- you, learn, you learn from your mistakes and you learn from it pretty, pretty hard. And that was definitely one of those times. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I totally understand you. I've, I've become so tame now. You know, I, I always know when to call it a night. Um, After that, Johan, so have I. <laughs> <laughs> we get old, you know, we, can't, we, we, we get on it. We, we, yeah, <laughs> we're no longer teenagers. No, I, I, I need two days off afterwards if I'm going to do anything like that anymore. Speaking of being teenagers, what were the bands that you looked up to as a teenager that made you want to create the type of energy and sound that generates mosh pits and catharsis? I think, I, I mean, I, I kind of like grew up when I was like, like 11, 12 years old. I was into bands like Super Furry Animals and I think Oasis was one of the first bands I was into and like the Britpop stuff that was kind of around at the time. Being 10 or 11 years old, that was, you know, my introduction to guitars and things. Um, but yeah, I think I think probably the first band that kind of did the real noisy stuff was like, I remember like Mogwai put out Young Team in like 96, I think. And then Spiritualized put out uh, Ladies and Gentlemen, We're Floating in Space. And there was like this kind of a, a lot of, um, you know, noisy elements on that record as well. And I think those, those two albums and, and bands like Idlewild as well with their first few records like really made me kind of steer down a path of getting into gnarlier kind of music, you know, and not just songs about going out of the weekend or whatever, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I saw I saw you on your on your Instagram that you had a photo with uh, Mogwai. Uh, was that a, was that a, a a dream come true moment sharing a bill with them? Yeah, I mean, they're, they're honestly one of my um, all-time favorite. Like, I genuinely, like, absolutely love everything that they do. And yeah, they were just in, um, yeah, a festival in France somewhere, and they just looked up and they were there. And I don't often kind of like go over, or I, I get quite nervous about stuff like that. But I, you know, I, I thought it was my only ever opportunity of meeting them, so I walked over like a complete prize twat and was like, "Hello, hi." <laughs> But now we share the same uh, same guitar tech, which is quite interesting. So, ooh, nice. He he tells us stuff about loud noises, which is great. <laughs> ooh, wow! Imagine the insight. Do you, yeah. Can, is that ethical? Can you ask him like stuff like, well, you know, what did Mogwai do on on, on for that moment in that live show? You know, when they peer, play Mogwai Fear Satan or something that it sounds even louder than it has been less sounding for the last twenty years or whatever. 
I mean, I, I think I can. I think I can. I tell you know, it's uh, the thing. Is, I think it's uh, you know, I think like trade secrets are kind of uh, maybe best left to those guys if they don't want them going out. You know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like when, you know when you'd cover your your in an exam. You know, you'd cover your test. You know, I can see Stewart or. You've always got that one mate looking over your shoulder, like, is that one? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. No, that's, uh, you know, that, I've, yeah, I've met those guys a few times now and stuff, and like, they're, they're wonderful people, and, you know, they still continue to yeah. create just such amazing music. Yeah, total respect, Mogwai. Um, speaking of. Hmm? I was just going to say, I remember uh, we did a, a signing, like they were playing at Primavera the year that we played and we were doing a signing in the tent and they were playing on the on the Ray-Ban stage, I think, maybe. Could be. And, uh, and yeah, it was like right behind. And I was just like sat there like, this is, this is absolutely amazing, you know, just sitting there and just being able to hear them in the background while you're, while you're playing your favourite festival in the world. It's like, yeah, things like that that make you feel very humble and appreciative of of, of what we do and, and the opportunities that we get, you know? Yeah. Speak, well, because we're, live music has been put on hold in a way, you know, some people manage to do small gigs and stuff, but um, we're, we're reminiscing a lot with, with artists that we get to interview, you know, to because uh, that's all we can do for now, reminisce, reminisce for the golden days. Um, do, you, do you have any uh, funny memory or anecdote from a, a backstage, apart from that time that you, you had to sleep on the floor in London on the street? Uh, do you have any any other sort of backstage memory that stands out? It's like, oh god, this one's for the, this one's going into your autobiography. Oh man, too many. But I've got to save them for my memoirs, haven't I, Johan? <laughs> I can't give I can't give them all out now. I don't know. Just like, you know, I've been. Um, I, th I think me and Joe and Bowen uh, have and John as well. Actually, I've been going to Primavera uh for years even before the band was even touring um it's it's, it's basically our favorite festival to go to like the lineup is just always just absolutely incredible and you know just being able to play that for the first time was just like a, an absolute fucking dream like it really was so um yeah stuff like that is um it's definitely is things that you know you remember you know you forget about all the traveling and the the 3am lobby calls and stuff like that yeah when you get to do stuff like you know play beautiful festivals like primavera yeah Not, not to turn this into a name-dropping fest, but the, one of the cool, nice things about Primavera Sound backstages is loads of people end up forging nice uh, friendships. Uh, is there anyone you've you've become closer with or that you met that was like you had a really sort of good um, kinship with, uh, either Primavera or any other festival? I mean, we've well. we kind of uh, you know we've met. I think the national we've become uh, good friends with um, over time. Um, yeah, I mean Sharon Van Etten. Um, we met Warren Ellis um, backstage at a gig, and uh, you know, like Rolling Blackouts, Coastal Fever. Um, you know, just on the way, you just meet these just absolutely amazing people who you end up staying in touch with. It's it's truly a wonderful thing. So you just realise, you know, you kind of 
in awe of these like wonderful people and then you know you just realize that everyone's just a fan of music and you just sit down and you just chat about you know the thing that you all love the most and yeah. it just feels like the most natural thing in the world not a single thing has ever been mended by you standing there and saying you're offended go ahead tell them what i've intended Say what I mean, do what I love and fucking send it. Speaking of, uh, you know, Warren Ellis uh, collaborates on, on the album. Yeah, yeah, he uh, he, he came down because obviously he's worked with Nick uh, many, many times and he lives in Paris and and Nick was like, oh, well, you, you know, Warren's coming down today and we kind of came up from doing a take and he's just stood in the kitchen looking absolutely amazing in this like beautiful suit and we're like holy fuck there's warren ellis <laughs> it's like, oh shit like you know we'd, we'd met i think bowen and, and joe had met him once before at a festival in belgium but yeah to actually just sit down and have like a proper conversation with him and stuff and you know getting him in the booth to do his thing on on a track was just yeah it's the stuff dreams are made of really Obviously, everyone's uh, talking and asked you a lot about Jamie Cullum being such an unexpected collaborator on this album, and and, and you've explained it many times. You know that you, you met at the at an award show, if I'm not mistaken, Mercury Music Prize. Yeah, I think we met him at the Mercury's, but he'd been, uh, I think he'd been kind of tweeting about us since like brutalism, to be honest, and that was one of those like, what the fuck, like, all, like is that? actual Jamie Cullen, like, you know, and like, um, yeah, we actually finally got to meet him and we got him really well. And then, you know, I think, we, I think we posted a photo of Warren being in the studio and then Jamie kind of messaged us and was like, hey, I'd love to be involved in any way possible. And we're like, yeah, man, fucking bring it on, you know. Because <laughs> he is such an, uh, an incredible musician. Uh, did you actually get to, did you get to share time in the studio or was it a file sharing situation? No, this is so. Uh, this was like um, this was kind of as as COVID started to like really kind of kick in. So we had to like kind of do it separately, unfortunately. But um, yeah, hopefully we'll uh, get to hang out and, and do something soon. Yeah, you know? yeah. Uh, going back to the technical aspect, uh, when I when I watched you at uh, Primavera Weekender in Benidorm. Uh, I got this feeling that there was this from start to finish. There was this constant kind of like an engine roar going on with your with your sound you know it's like roar, this rumbling this constant rumble is it a technical thing that you do with your amps and your pedals what what is it exactly is it something deliberate or was it just my perception at that moment with the echoes of the venue i i you know there's certain points where you know if we do want it to sound like this just well, this absolute block of noise but there is also the very big chance that something fucked up really badly johan because that's what we do quite well <laughs> there's 
it's um our, our sound engineer is pretty astute so i'm sure it would have been something uh something purposeful well it's not like that okay i don't want you to spill all your secrets but it's not like there's a, a backing track well, i don't know it, it, it's it's almost like you know when you go and have a, a stew somewhere you know some to some restaurant and it's like oh there's this funky flavor i can't get my i can't get words around what it is but oh i just need more of it and that's what i take away from from that idol show it's like this it's, it's, it's addictive it's addictive yeah yeah keep it up yeah well we, we um you know we like i said we we but we, we've spent quite a long time uh especially like bowen you know and, and lee they you know because they're they're the ones with all the kind of um options um so we, we think a lot about kind of what frequencies are being filled to try and make it sound as full as possible so even though i might be doing the low end a lot of the time bowen is doing even lower than I am to kind of like fill out that sonic space so yeah so it's a lot of things like that go into go into our thought processes and our playing uh, I've read that Joe rejects and I think all of you would do uh, reject the notion that idols are a punk band has this been something you all agree on or have there been long discussions in the van on tour about this existential crisis shall we say <laughs> oh no it's cool it's like you know people need labels and like, that's fine it's just you know it's uh it's just something that you know it's i don't think it just really reflects what we do as much you know it's for me personally i i don't mind it i don't think any of us mind it really but we're you know we just try and not be what's the word i can what's what's the best way to put this johan what's the best way to put this I don't know. We just kind of, we. It, I think it just can kind of like pigeonhole us when, if you want to do something else outside of the box, or you know, people only see you as this kind of thing. And mm. you know, we we were, you know, we want to we want to spread our wings, and you know, it can be quite reductive to just put people in one little box and not allow them to be able to, you know, try new things. You know. Mm. Well, I said it was going to be the last one, but this makes me think. Uh, as I say, your albums sound like they are intended to be performed live, and you've, you're taking so many dynamics into into account and the audience. Have you ever sort of considered that you might also like to try making a maybe a, an album that is more made to just enjoy in the household, uh, like a lockdown album, maybe not not a lockdown album, but just sort of maybe a more atmospheric, something more experimental, which isn't so much about setting it up live. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's always going to be, you know, it's, it's it's about wanting to progress as musicians and people, and you know, we're five individuals who don't only just listen to one thing. So, like, yeah, I mean, it, it would be an, an amazing avenue to be able to to kind of explore at some point um, and just trying out different things because you know we 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 want to try and express ourselves in in many varied and interesting ways if we can if we're not just labeled as a punk band maybe <laughs> well thank you so much dev for this interview it's been a real pleasure talking to you this afternoon hey you too man you too thank you for your uh Thank you for your time. Thank you for your festival. It's truly amazing. And I can't wait to come back. Oh, we can't wait to have you back and and, 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 and celebrate and listen to live music and see and see what Ultramono sounds like live. Um, so 
uh, have a good afternoon, uh, have a good dinner, and I hope you not, you don't stay up too late for drinking coffee. Yeah, that's the last that's the last one now man that's the last one <laughs> <laughs> all right bye bye signing off take care man bye bye take care.